Hello and welcome to Work Interrupted, a podcast looking at work life after COVID and asking what next. I'm Christina Patterson and I'm talking to people from a wide range of working backgrounds to find out how their own work is changing in the light of current challenges, what they think will happen to the work landscape and how we can make work work better for each other and for us. Today I'm delighted to welcome Julia Hobsbawm, entrepreneur, writer and expert on connectedness in the machine age. She founded the network and media business Editorial Intelligence and the Social Capital Network for BAME Professionals and was awarded an OBE for services to business in 2015. Her books include Fully Connected and The Simplicity Principle, which won two awards and it's also a podcast and a self-help brand. Julia is Honorary Visiting Professor in Workplace Social Health at the former Cass Business School, a speaker on social health and a regular guest on Sky News. In this podcast, she talks about the importance of generosity and what she learnt from her grandma Lily's salon. Welcome to Work Interrupted, Julia. I'm totally delighted to be with you on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. My pleasure. So tell me, how has lockdown three been for you? Um, like a lot of people, I think lockdown three was the hardest. Um, a sort of existential angst and ennui kicked in. Um, two of our three children who are at home, I've got five in total, two are stepchildren who are grown up. Mm. But two of the three uh, young adults um, have got exams. Our eldest is doing his finals. Our youngest is doing what was GCSEs. Um, and so, yes, it was a pretty miserable Christmas and spring, really. So we're all just aching for for May when you mm. can go back to really being face to face in person. Mm. But it's been look. I mean, I think I'm in, you know, the one percent of the one percent. I've got a spacious house. I've walked ninety minutes every day in uh, on Hampstead Heath, which I live about twenty minutes walk from. Mm. Um, I've worked from home more or less uninterrupted. I'm sure we'll talk about that. And the children are resilient and we are, you know, a good um, support to each other. But it, it look, it's been hard, hasn't it? It was hard and horrible. And I think the shock of the of how last minute it was just before Christmas was yeah. really bad. Um, and we always have a big family gathering on Boxing Day, which, of course, was cancelled. Mm. Um and the children in particular were really upset about it. So, yeah, it's not been great. Aww. I mean, you have a portfolio life like many of us with many different strands. And one, of course, is editorial intelligence, the EI network of about yes. 3,000 people and organisations who are connected in different ways, many of them obviously usually in real life. Now, I've been lucky enough to go to lots of them over the years and have had a huge amount out of them. But obviously, all of that had to stop when the pandemic hit. How did you react? Well, I actually, uh, by luck, you know, lots of being in business is about timing and luck. Um, I had an instinct actually in 2018 for a number of reasons that the event business, which editorial intelligence was much more in then, was sort of peaking. Uh, we ran a conference that we as, as you know, had the pleasure of your company at called Names Not Numbers for 10 years. We ran it in the UK, we ran it in the US, we ran it in India. And it was lovely and it convened really less than 
150 people, the so-called Dunbar number, the maximum number of people you can be really connected with at any one time. And we, we, it was wonderful. It was one of the best things I think I've ever done in my career. But the conference market was getting ever so busy around that time. And certainly making money from it was almost impossible without sponsorship. Um, we did continue up until the end of 2019 to do small face-to-face salon gatherings but by then we'd started the business which is now the mainstay uh, which is really where the luck comes in which is in fact what we're doing now I mean we're in the podcast business we're in the content and connection business so we do corporate podcasts and some corporate convening of digital salons so I feel I dodged a bit of a bullet One of the things we did set up a year ago, which has continued through the pandemic and actually has been a fantastic learning curve, is something called the Social Capital Network Mm. for black and ethnic minority professionals um, from disadvantaged uh, and minority communities. And we got some funding and basically made that more of a WhatsApp and Zoom-based network which at the beginning of the pandemic, I thought, oh, no, this is just not going to be as good for them. But actually it worked and they've created the most incredible, thriving network. So I've ended up actually being far more a fan of technology um, than I was before the pandemic. Very interesting. Very interesting. I've met some of the people through your social capital network, really, really impressive youngsters uh, who've gone on to do some great things and I I was really struck in in the simplicity principle you mentioned I think going to a meeting somewhere and meeting a young woman working on uh, in the cloakroom who I think had was a young graduate but was struggling to find any kind of meaningful work and you very kindly took her in in your generous way uh, into your business now I think you say that didn't have a particularly happy ending but it, it I was so moved by that story because I think at a time when many of us even as you say the kind of one percenters maybe not in terms of wealth well clearly not in terms of wealth in my case yes but, not in terms uh, but, of wealth. I don't mean the one percent of the wealth no no, no. <laughs> but in terms of privilege in being able to be in a comfortable home in my case for the first time in my adult life with a garden because I'm at my partner's house in a village in Northamptonshire and I'm in a house for the first time with a garden for the first time since uh, since I left my parents home and I've been extremely lucky but it was just I felt it was just um, being reminded not only as we all are every day by the key workers who have risked their lives for us in supermarkets and on, in cabs, on buses, in, and of course in the NHS, but also all those people who do not have the advantage of what you call, and obviously others also call, social capital. And I know this has been a kind of growing theme in your work. Can you say a bit about how you got into that? Yes, well, I, I suppose I ought to preface it by saying that I know that I was born with a silver networking spoon in my mouth. Okay? <laughs> you know, my dad was a, um, a prominent academic. My mother is a, is a Viennese um, salonniere. I grew up, uh, you know, waiting on my parents' dinner parties with lots of fantastically interesting, good and great people and warmth and sociability and... And I mean, I'm more or less uh, an extrovert, although I have considerable introvert aspects of my personality. But but so I'm friendly. Um, and 
I've built networks. You know, I, I was actually fantastically unsuccessful academically. And now, 30 years into my career, if you like, it turns out that the networks I built were far more important, actually, than the degree I never took and the, um, you, you, you know, the traditional career path I never took. And I've always, therefore, been interested in social mobility. And one of my early formative experiences was being the book publicist of the late great activist and writer Maya Angelou. Um, and I had just an extraordinary experience. You know, I was a privileged, white, Jewish girl from North London, given total responsibility for organising the book tour over one summer for Maya Angelou for the fifth volume of her autobiography. We're talking pre-internet, but she was still a very well-known star. Um, I had an extraordinary summer and we formed a friendship. And I just, I mean, it sounds sort of trite perhaps to say it, you know, I learned a lot about race. I didn't have mm. black people from the black community whose lives I really was connected to. And she taught me, I read much more widely as a result of her. I, I will say that I used to see Oprah Winfrey quite a lot in her company. Um, Oprah was wow. not yet quite as intergalactically famous as she is, but she was already a big television star. And Maya used to come to um, uh, a hotel in Knightsbridge, um, a very, very upper class English hotel um, with a with a sort of cocktail lounge called the Parrot Club. And uh, in her suite, we used to go, my, the publisher and I, uh, while Maya held court, and Oprah and her boyfriend Stedman were often there. And it was very interesting. Maya was always completely open and welcoming of me. And we had a very special relationship, which really inspired me to start the Social Capital Network um, mm -hmm. all those years later. But actually, as I now remember, Oprah was never warm. She was always pretty hostile. Oh, um, how interesting. Yeah, and I did think of that recently um, uh, when, you know, I think she quite deliberately um, fanned the flames of, of uh, discord and uh, with the interview. And I, I wondered, And I wondered about that, I've got to say, and I remembered that she was always pretty cold. She was also very generous. She, she, she once hosted a fabulously glamorous 60th, I think it was, birthday party for Maya. And we all flew over and I mean, yeah. you've never seen such opulence or wealth. And it, you know, it's a party I shall dine out on forever. So generous <laughs> she was, but cool she also was in a way that Maya Angelou never was. And Maya Angelou connected me to a generosity of spirit and to notice people who come from a place that isn't your own. Mm -hmm. And that brings me back to this story that you picked up on that I wrote about where I, I I did notice a a woman and her daughter. They clearly were related. They were in a sort of basement dungeon in one of the grander buildings of the City of London Corporation for some posh breakfast. They were on the coat check. Um, I have to say, pretty inevitably, nobody looked at them, spoke to them. I absolutely did speak to them and said hello and looked in their faces just out of a basic respect. And I chatted because I'm friendly. And it just became clear to me that the young woman kind of had no prospects and no confidence. Um, and so I tried to help her enlarge her networks, but it was almost like she'd lost hope before mm -hmm. she had begun. 
it was a really unsuccessful experiment and I was terribly upset and thought what am I doing wrong and I thought actually probably I need to cut my cloth and extend the networks to people who've already self-identified as wanting to be part of the professional classes Mm. Um, and the minute I sort of made that tiny adjustment it clicked into place I went to lots of corporate clients like Vodafone like Barclays and said I wanted to begin an experiment of funding people that I sourced from networks that were already being set up. Satnam Sanghera, who's written such an extraordinary book on empire, he was one of the very, very early backers in the media of, of, of networks of young people from minority backgrounds. Um, and so I went to his network and went to something called the Taylor Bennett Foundation, which is still growing strong mm. for young black professionals in PR. And then the Social Capital Network got really off the ground, Christina. I'm pleased to say about nine months before the events of last May and George Floyd's murder. And mm. um, we went to, I actually went to Downing Street Civil Society Unit and Samuel, the young chap who's now um, yeah. left. Died. But funnily <laughs> enough, I'm going to have to say, rather unpopular, the sponsor for supporting the Social Capital Network, which raised corporate money, which has allowed us to help. 25 individuals very intensively and pretty successfully over the last year. The sponsor in 10 Downing Street was actually Munir Amirza. So, oh, interesting. yeah, it is interesting, complex. Um, but anyway. Well, nothing, nothing straightforward, is it? And, nothing uh, is straightforward. And I mean, I'm often, you know, I think people, because I've got a sort of left wing background by association, I think people are sometimes shocked that really I'm pretty politically polyamorous. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not a dyed in the wool party animal for one mm-hmm. particular political party. I'm much more interested, really interested in where change happens and yeah. who is doing stuff. And I to some degree, I mean obviously we all have our red lines, but to some degree I really don't care what the labelling is, what I care about is the change. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think that's the, I mean, change doesn't happen. If you're if you're meticulously pure about the labels, then change simply doesn't happen, not least because I think there have only been, I think some, I think Labour have only won about four elections since 1908 or something like that, five maybe. I mean, it's not very much. Mm. Um, I wanted to pick up on generosity there because one of the key things I've well, I think that everybody noticed about you, Julia, but I certainly have, is your extraordinary generosity. And um, you were kind enough to invite me to a lot of your EI events, which I absolutely loved. But even when I lost my job and was in pieces, you invited me along to a Names Not Numbers weekend in Aldborough, where I kind of wept over everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember I was terribly thin because I just lost my job and I, and, you know, I was in a state of complete trauma. And at and was of no use as a kind of contact at that point, but you invited me anyway. And I just wanted to mark that here because I think generosity in life clearly is incredibly important, but it also plays a key part in in business. Lots of businesses now are talking about their values, but you know the key question is whether those values are genuine or not. And I wondered if you could say a bit about where your values have come from and the role they have played for you in developing your businesses. Well, firstly, thank you for the compliment. And the truth is, I, I, I like helping people, and I think people are interesting. And I've never ever run any of my life along the lines of 
you know, sort of transactional. I mean, it's been a great big irony. I sort of think, you know, one of the times I've sort of probably cried into my cups and said I'm misunderstood is when people said, oh, she's a networker. You know, networking's all about getting on and, mm. you know, and it, nothing could be further from the truth. Mm. You know? But if, if, if people ever understand one thing about, about networks, it's how um, important and valuable they are. And, and generosity is completely key. Why would you not help somebody else? And, and somebody isn't valuable because of their job title. They're valuable because of what they feel and think and know. I mean, I, I, I do feel very, very keenly about that. Where do these values come from? Well, I do remember being in New York, a city I've had a long, long, long love affair with and probably miss most from the pandemic. Um, you know, people say, do you miss the parties? And weirdly, I say, not really. And they say, do you miss the theatre? And I say, mm, not completely. I quite like having had the space and the time, but I really miss New York. Mm. And, and I went to New York with my father, who had, I think, an academic uh, uh, gig at the new school in Manhattan. And I was a teenager. And these were the days when New York was pretty, pretty dangerous and the taxis were bumpy and didn't have fancy tellies in them. And he would always, as we zipped along up and down the city in cabs, more than subways, because they were a bit scary at that point, um, he would always lean forward, re you know, through the grill, separating us from the driver, and he'd say, where are you from? Because, of course, America is the great melting pot. Mm. And the driver would always just blossom under the interest Mm. And they would he they would always tell my dad where they were from, and because he was a bit of a walking encyclopedia, he'd then sort of reel off the football <laughs> statistics and the economic GDP of their country. And you know. <laughs> but I mean, the truth is, it that I thought was you know he was a teacher, and teachers are generous because they're curious. Yes. So my values, I hope, are curiosity and generosity, because without that. There's not really any point in anything. Yeah. I'm actually rather a bad businesswoman. I mean, I love selling and I've been in business and stayed in business and I really enjoy business, um, which is another reason why I think my left left leaning credentials have been rather battered, because, you know, if you're on the left, you're not supposed to like business. And I mm. think business is absolutely great, frankly. But the truth is, I'm much more interested in the ideas and yep. the integrity of what you do and who you do it for and why you do it than I am about what perhaps some uh, of, of the stereotypes about business are, which is, you know, yes. make as much as possible. And I think demonstrably I have not made as much as possible. But, you know, I, I, I like making money and I like generating jobs, actually. I really like working with freelancers, um, which is mainly what, what my company does now. Mm. Um uh, but but the value, I think, probably, if I'm absolutely honest, is the idea and the creativity and the, the crack of it rather than the making the money bit. Yeah, but very interesting. I mean, I feel I, I'm not clearly not entrepreneurial, but I feel the same. I just can't get I can't I can't really put energy into the making money side of things because unless it's a byproduct, really, of something that I find interesting. But obviously, if you you know, if you have. You, you have to pay the rent first and foremost so um it all depends on one's particular mix and uh you know how much you need to keep going and so on i i loved um i loved it when you mentioned in the simplicity principle that uh, 
when your father died, I think it was in Chile that students were saying Viva Hobsbawm <laughs> because he was so loved there. Like, but I, and, and obviously your father was very famous, but I didn't know that your mother was a Viennese salonniere. How wonderful to have that kind of Mitteleuropa, um, well, not just background, but the, the salon part of it. One of the things I loved particularly about when you were doing um, many live events was the the uh, EI dinners, the network dinners. And I remember uh, being asked to chair one once and then going off and writing a column about the return of the salon. And um, I know that Queen Christina of Sweden um, ran one in Rome and my Twitter name is Queen Christina. Yeah. So I felt a particular <laughs> identification with that. And you talk in your book a lot about small uh, small groups, particularly six, because you, you talk a lot, about, a lot about the number six, but there is something amazing, isn't there, about a relatively small group gathered together where with lovely wine and food in a lovely place, but where you don't have to talk, make small talk or talk about families or all this stuff, but you can just talk about ideas and what matters can you say a bit more about was it because of your mother that you had those that you sort of developed this salonier uh, strand or where did that come from well even today editorial intelligence is um uh 16 years old and what we do is really create intimacy intimacy is what drives people i think yeah. the need to connect to be seen, to be heard, to be understood, um, to be provoked. And really intimacy, I think, can clearly be achieved at huge scale. Just look at rock concerts. You know, that's an amazing. Mm. Freddie Mercury um, at Live Aid, for instance, uh, was an incredibly intimate moment in front of millions. But generally speaking, in real time, in an everyday setting, smaller groups really matter most so for instance when we convene digital salons conversations the most we would ever have on screen is something like 30. Um, I noticed that Tortoise Media have done incredibly well um, with, with, with you know a couple of hundred but in the end um, especially if you're in person where you want to be heard and exchange views a dinner party size is the best size yeah um, so the salon yes stuff actually it wasn't so much my mum it was my grandma Lily my oh. grandma Lily was a Viennese um emigre uh I, I once gave an interview to the Jewish Chronicle and described my family as refugees and my uncle Walter who was a celebrated journalist for the Guardian he was a wonderful man he wrote a brilliant memoir himself um he was sent as the head of the delegation of the family to complain to me about the way I've described them in the oh. Jewish Chronicle interview. Terrifying. I was summoned by Uncle Wall. <laughs> and um, and I have to say, I thought, my God, what have I said wrong? Because, you know, it, there are plenty of things to get wrong in an interview with the Jewish Chronicle, but I thought I'd done okay. And mm -hmm. he banged his fist on the table and he said, this walnut table didn't come with refugees, Julia. It came with emigres. <gasps> and I thought, okay, I stand corrected. I just had no idea that's how strongly my family felt about the difference. Wow. Because, of course, plenty of my family did not make it through the camps. Yeah. 
nobody from middle Europe who's Jewish is uh, here today without a relative who is not here today. Mm. Um, but I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. So my grandma, Lily, um, was typical of that generation of emigres where they really didn't want to think of themselves as Jewish survivors of anything or refugees. So she became terribly English and with a Viennese accent. And she used to have lovely, lovely family gatherings in her flat in St. John's Wood, which I'm afraid has been turned into the most awful banker's flat. Oh, no. We you know with sort of terrible topiary and a dugout pool in the basement. But at the time, it was a lovely, charming, ramshackle um, apartment with high ceilings and windows. And, mm. and she used to, um, you know, she was a bit of a blue rinse Viennese lady but there was just fabulous gatherings around her table so I probably learnt it from her and from my parents dinner parties yes the convening of people how wonderful so I don't know if you remember this but uh you interviewed me for a job when I was 23 or 24 at Virago probably with would it have been with Ursula Owen gosh I know well I don't remember that (laughs) I thought you didn't (laughs) And I, then I didn't see you again for about more than 20 years, probably. How but I know. But so we both started off in book publicity and you talked about your your time with Maya Angelou. I remember seeing her. I don't I don't remember whether I met her. I probably didn't. But I, I sort of feel like I did. But I certainly remember seeing her at Hay and how this phenomenal energy she had. But it's kind of interesting because we both started off in book publicity and then went in in quite different directions. But certainly one thing that I felt, because I went from book publicity to then doing publicity at the South Bank Centre and then organising events for writers and then you know various other things. But I ended up feeling for quite a while like sort of the handmaiden of other people's creativity. And it took me a very long time before I felt sort of... Um, able to I felt as if I had the right in a way to pursue my own I I was reviewing during this time I was reviewing uh, books from my mid-20s but again that was kind of um, criticizing commenting on enabling chairing events with rather than feeling I was allowed to write in my own right did you have anything similar and if so what changed things for you yes I totally recognize that I mean I loved publicity and PR um, and I you know my my career in in PR um, was in you know the telex years not the Twitter years you know really more or less pre-internet where um, there was a finite amount of media I loved that relationship I, I, I you know really enjoyed understanding what journalism wanted and being the voice the ambassador the representative and it wasn't until I was in my early 40s having done it for more than 20 years that I wanted something different and I was um pretty overloaded at the time pretty um you know I was a by this point a mother of three young children stepmother of two young children um I'd started the business editorial intelligence um, which was really still a platform model, other people's voices, other people's mm. work. Um, 
and I got really, really ill um, and nearly died. I got pneumonia and sepsis on a holiday. Um, and so that was a rather, you've written about this as well. I mean, it's a pretty clarifying moment. Yeah. And so I understood then that I wanted to make some changes in my life. And one of those changes was, I think, to to use my voice and to not almost hide behind anybody else's. Mm. Um, and and so then I, I I had always written a bit, you know, but but then I started to, I suppose, peep out from from under my own skirts of shyness. Mm. You know, I, I've often thought of as an extrovert, loud and friendly and on the front foot. But of course, using your voice requires a lot of bravery, doesn't it? Um, and I had to find that bravery and and to discard quite a lot of imposter syndrome because I have two chips on my shoulder, really. One of them is that I am very, very badly educated. I went to a, a, a famous school, Camden School for Girls, um, was, was, you know, really told, don't apply for Oxbridge like the clever girls, you won't get in. You know, I really thought I was stupid always. Um, and... And then I had a really famous father who wasn't just a famous father. He was a really sort of brain boffy father. Um, <laughs> and uh, so it took me a long time um, and some what might be euphemistically called assisted self-help, you know, to realise that, that, you know, I, I, I could move beyond that. And, mm. and actually it comes back to this point about curiosity. I've always been really, really interested in a million different things. And so I realised that that was a strength and that if I could harness that into a narrative and into words and to you know then then maybe if I was as interested in in things I could communicate that interest not on other people's behalf for other people's interest but for my own it was a big turning point and I don't think I did it before I was 45 and I'm nearly 57 now you've mentioned that you have three children and two stepchildren and of course you've had you know, a number of different businesses and a very full life as a writer speaker visiting professor and so on. I've always thought, how the hell does she do it? Um, and you wrote your first book, The Seesaw, which was 100 Ideas for Work-Life Balance, I think, in, in 2009, which is a lovely, practical, no-nonsense book. If you had to, that was, I think, before your septicemia and pneumonia. Is, is that right? Uh, no, it oh, was, was it after. after. Right. It was after. And actually, it wasn't completely my first book I actually wrote the cosmopolitan guide to working in PR and advertising co-written oh. with Robert Gray in, in 1996 that oh. Penguin published oh, right. um, and that was probably the beginning of the moment where I remember I took a three-month sabbatical from the business that I was running and just surrounded myself with the history of communications and and wrote and then I really got the taste for it as you know once you start to write it's really difficult to stop yeah yeah um, and uh yeah so no I would uh, the see I would say that um even when I was writing the seesaw I was um you know it's quite a light book the seesaw um it wasn't until 2015 that I started to write Fully Connected mm. that I think I allowed myself to take myself a bit seriously and to really express my views and my writing. And 
I mean, I found it very rewarding and it was rewarded in that I didn't actually stop touring globally on that book until just before The Simplicity Principle was published a year ago. Amazing. Yeah. Really amazing. Yeah. And it was, and, but how do I do it? Look, if you've got energy and, and enthusiasm and support, whether that's material support, you know, I, I've not experienced poverty. Poverty brings a lot of, you know, lack of support. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, I, I, I live in a two-parent household and my um, bookseller husband was all, also the house husband. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really have much work-life balance, Christina, until I got ill and started to realise I needed it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I had none. You know, I was a absolutely classic workaholic. So if you were to sum up the key lessons of, I mean, that this is a theme of all your books in different ways, and, and of course, particularly the simplicity principle, but if you were to sum up the key themes of, of uh, the seesaw in terms of work-life balance or the key, the key lesson, could you do that? Well, I think I've always been interested in, if you like, personal productivity and organisational productivity. I've actually always been a bit of a management nerd. When I worked in television, you know, hundreds of years ago, I was a researcher for Wogan, which your younger listeners will not remember, but Wogan was a big deal in back in the day, three times a week, seven o'clock. And I was a little bit of a stage left researcher because I wasn't properly a television person. Television back in those days was, um, you know, was actually something you you needed a degree for. And and, uh, I didn't have a degree. I was, I think, the first person accepted into Thames Television who didn't have a degree to work as a researcher on a programme. And I worked on Wogan. And so I was given sort of slightly offbeat guests. I wasn't given, generally speaking, the mainstream A-list celebrities. Um, uh, And I was given Sir Peter Parker, who used to be the chair of British Rail, and he had written an autobiography. And I, I mean, I was really in my early 20s. And he and I had the most fabulous conversation about productivity and, uh, you know, organisation. And I've always been a bit of a nerd for that. I've always been interested in articulating um you know, how do we do what we do? How can we do better? How can we organise ourselves? And work-life balance is, if nothing else, about having coping strategies for a, a very overloaded life. Mm. And I mean, it's a it's a statement of the bleeding obvious to say once you have children and you work, it's an overloaded life. If you have illness and you work, it's an overloaded life. If you've got caring responsibilities, it's an overloaded life. Mm. And the working world and the way technology has made the working world, it's even more of an overloaded life. So, yeah. I mean, I would say the theme in some respects of the seesaw and fully connected and the simplicity principle and then the subject of the book I'm working on at the moment, the nowhere office, it's kind of of a piece, really. Yes. It's about how do we do what we do as humans in a machine world? Yes. Yes. And and the, the big theme of fully connected is a concept that you, you invented in a way and uh, are have been you know speaking about and uh, pushing to enter into the policy arena which is social health can you yes. just sum up for us what social health is well so after I got ill with pneumonia um it, it was 14 years ago this summer I went on holiday to Albra um so my business was two years old and I 
was working until midnight on the Saturday before I went on holiday. And I remember vaguely noticing that I had had a cold for months and months and months and months. And I was remember thinking, why am I in the office at 12 o'clock at night? This is a bit mad. Um, uh, but of course, anyone who goes on holiday and has got too much to do knows that you overwork before you take time off. And I tried to go for a run on the beach at Aldborough, um, which was a silly thing to do. I had no literacy about exercise at all at the time. I was a bit overweight and I'd had this cold. And I got halfway along the shingle shore to the scallop for Maggie Hamblin. And I stopped and it was like I was filling with sand, literally filling with sand. I couldn't move and I dragged myself back, went to bed. The next few days passed in a blur. My husband was tied up with all these tiny, tiny children. And anyway, then we ended up having a sort of very, very, very scary mad dash to hospital. And so then I began to reappraise and I got interested in the fact that really we have some literacy about physical health and mental health, but that the additional load that being connected and bearing in mind, I remember this was the first summer I was on Facebook, um, the additional always on era was actually causing an, a, a different crisis, uh, a social health crisis, which was a kind of crisis of connection. And so I then wanted to explore, well, where's the practice and principle around that? And then I looked up the World Health Organization's definition, which hasn't changed since 1948, that health is the presence of physical, mental and social well-being, not merely the absence of injury or disease. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, social well-being back in 1948 sort of meant class. It didn't mean computers. Mm. And so I suddenly realised that we weren't talking about the things that then we quickly did talk about, which is probably why Fully Connected resonated such a lot, which is digital overload and detox, and then all the mental health and stresses of the things we now realise have come as a terrible price we're paying for the internet and for, you know, unfettered free speech and always on social media, which is, you know, some not nice stuff as well. Um, social health now is becoming more about, um, in the context of, you know, the nowhere office and the post-pandemic environment, is how do we connect at all, given that we spend so much time atomized and isolated and sitting on a Slack channel next to the person we're in the Slack platform with, and, you know, how do we actually untangle this, this sense of what really makes the world go round for people this word I've used before talking to you which is intimacy all mm. we want as humans is to connect all the neuroscience shows is that the default position of the human brain at rest when it's doing everything absolutely unconsciously the one thing that matters to every whirring human brain is the same thing and that thing is love who loves me and who do I love yeah. it is connection so social health has got to be all of that stuff so in some ways I took as a starting point the idea that it was about the balance between technology and being online and offline but I now think it's much more broader it's about networks it's about how we socialize and how we derive meaning in what we do and how we live yes and and of course in we've lived very differently for 
the past year one of the things that I was flicking through fully connected again last night and I came across your daughter Anushka's question mum in your day were there cars or just horses (laughs) (laughs) which made me laugh out loud (laughs) I still dine out on that it's wonderful (laughs) and it certainly says something about the pace of change and how confusing it is for all of us but we've we've gone obviously from a world where you know lived largely in the world but with huge amounts of time online to a world where for many of us all our social well anyone who isn't in a kind of key working job um all our social connection pretty much has been online what do you think that's done done or doing to our brains well it, it, it's clearly done great damage um i was just listening to simon wesley uh, on desert island discs the um the eminent psychiatrist And it comes back actually to the neuroscience point that I've just made about the fact that we are hardwired to be social and to Mm. connect. I mean, what Robin Dunbar, the evolutionary anthropologist, has pointed out is that actually in a weird way, Zoom and video conferencing is an acceptable proxy for um, connecting with your, you know, your senses, your face and your ears and and your voice, which is why, bizarrely, actually, um, therapy via Zoom has worked, and um, which, you know, you might find is surprising. But the truth is that we need, we are designed to build communities around others, to take our cues from others, to learn. I mean, all of this stuff, I'm not, you know, goodness me, you've, you've had other experts than me and proper experts on this subject. But But really, the reality is that being forced to be completely isolated has been shocking and terrible. And I don't think we've really understood, I don't think we can possibly understand the, the cost of that yet, mm. because we're still sort of in it. Yeah. So even though I do think and argue pretty forcefully that the idea that we're all going to go back to work wholesale in a nine to five model is not going to happen, and I don't think it should happen. There is absolutely no doubt that anything that allows people to gather and engage and connect one-to-one or one-to-many is going to be the best recovery post-pandemic there is. I mean, it's been, I found it excruciating. And in fact, my mother, who's 89, um, my brother and I now realised that it was a terrible, terrible thing for her to have to be in isolation that first that first lockdown you know by the third lockdown we'd all got a little bit wise and carers and you know but it was absolutely hardcore the first lockdown and lots and lots of people saw no one I mean we obviously went to the door every day and we taught her Skype and so on but it's not the same as being touched it's not the same as being in the physical space as somebody. So I, I think this is going to go down as a grave, grave um, social health catastrophe. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, in, in your research, which you've done originally, initially as a paper for the think tank Demos, but as you say, it will be a book, you, you talk about um, the different age groups and how they've responded differently or will respond differently have different ideas about where they might like to work so the learners who are the people under 35 who really need to be in an office environment at least some of the time just to learn the job I mean if I look back on 
most of my friendships have come from work in one form or another and it's going to be very hard to form proper friendships with people are spending most of their time sitting at home on their own even if they are relating on on zoom a lot and then you talk about the leavers who are the people over 35 who are often but often but by no means always more established in their lives you know often but by no means always with partners and families and other things to that you know might feel at least as con- as important to them as work and they already know how to do the job could you say a bit about how you see a balance a kind of acceptable balance emerging that will cater to the needs of both those groups as people start developing a sort of hybrid approach to the office yes well hybrid's the operative word so it, it is it's been coming for a long time back to the idea of work-life balance that work-life balance in a sense as a campaign was really led around women's hybrid needs to be you know the majority of women being the main caregiver giver and so on um but of course, guess what? It never took, got much, much traction. You know, the most progress we got around flexible working in the working world was the right to request flexible work yeah. back in 2003. You know, that's not much of a agile advance, frankly. But guess what? I think the men uh, experienced lockdown and have begun to change their perspective. And now <laughs> you see, I mean, you know, don't have to sort of be capital F feminist to point that out. And the truth is that now we're seeing an incredibly speedy, possibly over speedy reaction by male run businesses saying, right, that's it. You don't have to work more than two days a week or three days a week in the office. And it's mm. the truth is we don't know. I mean, I called it the nowhere office because because we are in the middle of nowhere knowing what we need to do in our lives post pandemic because of this tremendous social um, catastrophe. But the truth is that Generation Z, as it's known, has been driving for a more meaningful uh, personal life led work existence. Okay, so the workplace has has been scrambling to appease Gen Z for some time. So it's not that everything was tickety-boo and then the pandemic came along and suddenly we're in a crisis. These shifts, and that's why I chair the Work Shift Commission, these shifts have been, you know, rumbling along like tectonic plates basically for 50 years. They've been accelerating anyway. But what's happened is that now suddenly we realise, well, it is possible to work remotely. It is possible to use the technology. Therefore, what do we need offices for? What do we need presenteeism for? And I personally think that's a really, really interesting discussion to have. You know, um, I, I think that so much of working life is basically awful, terribly managed, unproductive, unsatisfactory, full of office politics, grim and ghastly. And I make that generalisation very pointedly. Uh, Of course, there are some people that have gorgeous, gorgeous, beautifully run, fabulous, comfortable, glass door ranking jobs. But the majority of working life is not a happy bunny and wasn't before the pandemic. You know, stress was cited by the World Health Organisation as the biggest health epidemic in the world before pandemic. Mm. 17.9 million to be specific 17.9 million working days a year are lost to stress according to the health and safety executive so really what I want to do is say well hang on let's look at these social and cultural shifts and actually do something positive with them and I think 
embracing hybrid is going to be hard, is going to be experimental, but I think it's really necessary, don't you? I do. Yes, I do. It's so long since I've worked in an actual office, I can honestly hardly remember what it's like. But I do remember, I think for one year at the Independent, I could work where I liked. And I worked about two days a week in the office and about three days at home. And and that was great. I mean, one of the things you, you, you've mentioned a, a couple of times is meaningful work. And obviously, everybody um, ideally wants to do work that's meaningful. Nobody wants to think they're uh, squandering their precious energy on something that's worth nothing. But we also know that businesses are kind of co-opting the whole idea of purpose in what can be a slightly cynical way, a sort of PR, another PR badge. How do we um, gauge what's real and what's phony in relation to purpose? Well, it's such a good question. Um, I mean, I'm I, you know, how could how could I disagree with the fact that um, there's an awful lot of PR guff that comes out of corporations? Um, you know, it's one of the reasons I myself got out of PR is because you 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 know the real money is to be made in in representing and advising corporations mm-hmm. um, who might want to use these techniques. But the fact is that I do think that weirdly, for the first time in about a hundred years of work the bosses and the workers, if I can use old speak, are quite aligned, which is there's a survival issue here because AI is here and is decimating old workers. We knew it. The um, axis of power, you don't have to be an economist to notice that, you know, the, 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 the centres of power are shifting east to west and so on and so forth. So everyone's in it to survive as much as they are to win. And purpose matters to consumers and purpose matters to workers. So I'm actually less cynical than some that purpose is just, you know, I think purpose is a lot more meaningful than CSR. Yeah, yeah. But but leave that aside, because like I say, luckily for me, I'm no longer in PR and I don't have to defend anybody's (laughs) spiel. But, but, But the point I would say is that what I think, and I've always thought, and it goes back to my lovely conversation in the green room at Woden with Peter Parker 800 years ago, mm. and the conversations I'm lucky enough to continue with people like Charles Handy today, is that when you are aligned with, you know, a purpose, whether it's to pay the rent and stack the shelves in a timetable that suits you or whether it's to feel marvelously creative and heard you know I'm not trying to paint a broad brush and say that we're all in the creative industries and 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 we all need to feel intellectually satisfied every minute of the day that you know that's not what the world of work is and it's certainly not what the entire world of 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 of, uh, the office is and the and the white collar as it's called um is but what I do think is everybody knows and understands at a human level if they're respected and if there's a point to what they're doing. You know, there's a point to stacking shelves, it's not a pointless exercise. Mm. But if you're managed in a shift that is impossible for you to, you know, feed your kids and look after your grandma in, then it doesn't feel as meaningful as if you are respected. I, I spent a couple of years actually advising. Um, an interesting company. I mean, I was on their sort of think tank board um, called the European Workforce Institute, which was funded by a business that runs software for shift workers, okay? 
And but I learned some really interesting things while sitting on that board. Um, and there actually is a shift that I think the office can can learn from the way factory floors are increasingly being managed for not high turnover productivity so much as productivity that meshes and aligns with the fact that people do have lives outside of that factory floor and outside of the shop floor. And that's a trend that I'm not sure those people who write about the office and comment on the office have really noticed. Um, you know, my report is picked up this week in The Economist, in the Bartleby, which writes a lot of really interesting stuff about the office. But most comment about the world of work and productivity doesn't really talk about it in connection to how people feel about their work. They talk about it in terms of production lines and factory floors. Whereas I, I think it's all really of a piece, much more than it used to be. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I think, you know, how you feel about your work, absolutely, that's at the heart of it. It's motivation, isn't it? And and um, one of the principles in uh, the simplicity principle, not the principles, but one of the themes is that when you believe in your in stuff, you know, you find ways to get it done, or at least it's, it's a kind of productivity principle as well. But I think what many of us find, I, I know I, I wrote both my books in about three months, but I can also spend days and days and days piddling around on email, not earning any money, because unless I've got a project I really believe in, um, I sort of can't be bothered. I mean, obviously, I do what comes my way and I meet my deadlines. But uh it is about whether you feel a real gut connection with it if you're in the luxurious position where you are a are freelance that isn't necessarily it's luxurious in terms of freedom obviously not necessarily in terms of money or where you are able to uh, to some extent determine what you do when in your job how what tips can you offer those of us who waste time on stuff that doesn't really matter which has to be done but don't do it very efficiently well, I mean, you know, it, for me, it's physician heal thyself. I'm a great time waster and I often um, rather shamefully disappear down the rabbit hole of, of some corner of the Internet or other. Um, the truth is that we are designed as humans, um, you know, by nature to be distracted. And there's a fantastic piece of research that I really made an impression on me and that I, I, I cite often and I think is in the book by Gloria Marks at the University of Irvine in California, who found that really when you try and pull your attention back over the line from, from the internet onto, if you like, the page, it takes on average 23 minutes and 17 seconds to do so. Oh, yeah, that was so shocking. I was so shocked when I read that. But, Horrifying. You know, but in a way you get that right it does take time to refocus when I come off this call when you come off this call we won't be able to sort of immediately do something fantastically productive we yeah. will fiddle or we will nibble or we will mm. be in an exhausted heap or we'll do you know what mm. I mean mm. and so from partly what the simplicity principle about is about respecting time and boundaries and knowing that it's not about you know being hyper focused and hyper productive and always on and this is how you can you know achieve the most at all I'm all for the veg out I'm all for the time out I'm all for the reset but it's about really understanding that if we constantly embrace the complex and to 
give your brain uh, nothing but unmediated access to a digital environment is a really complex thing to do to the brain. If you do that all the day long, it's going to be very difficult to connect to simple things like what am I feeling? What's the point of what I'm doing? And so distraction in some senses is a rather purposeful technique to cut out and to tune out. Yeah. Almost a survival mechanism, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So what I try and do when I find myself going down the rabbit hole, you know, which I, I would say happens at least once a day, I have a moment where I realise I'm sort of, you know, instead of tuning out and having a nap or having a walk, or having a break, I think I've got to do more, 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 and then I end up distracting myself. So I use distraction as a bit of a warning bell. Mm. That would be my first tip. The other thing is the whole six thing. Um, you know, I do think that six is within the working memory. It happens to also be mathematically, in geometrical terms, a so-called perfect number because mm. one, two, and three fold into it. So as an organizing number, it's pretty smart. It also happens to be the number of sides and the shape, which in nature, the hexagon, of course, is the most, not the most, but one of the most resilient and one of the most space efficient shapes in nature. So there was a sort of symmetry around choosing six, choosing the hexagon. And essentially, my biggest tip really is divide everything into sixes. Really, you know, divide your day into six time zones. Don't do more than six things on your to-do list. Sit for six minutes and just notice what on earth you're feeling or thinking or pops into your mind so you know at its simplest I think it's a scaffolding that's very very useful. Now in the simplicity principle final question now you describe yourself as an optimistic pessimist with pragmatic inclinations which I love anyone who knows me or who's listened to this podcast or who's read my book knows that I'm a bit obsessed by optimism and pessimism and I, I have only to hear someone announce I'm an optimist as if they are expecting a medal for me to want to punch them in the <laughs> face um if you were to pick one realistic hope for something good to emerge from this pandemic what would that be oh I think it's that change is always possible that small change makes big change happen that um people are moving um, together as much as they are apart um, and that you know disruption should not be regarded as terrifying you know this comes really back to my lesson in business in business disruption is good luckily because I run small businesses I can be really really agile I have no hesitation I've never had any hesitation about doing a screeching u-turn um, you know so that that is a little bit of optimism is that we are at a moment of disruption and change and on the whole good things come out of change great great lovely really lovely to have you on the podcast julia thank you so much well, it's a real pleasure thank you so much for listening to this podcast if you liked it i'd be really grateful if you could share rate and review it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast it really does help other people find it do follow me on Twitter, where I'm at QueenChristina underscore, and on Instagram, where I'm at QueenChristinaWriter. If you want to find out how I dealt with my own big work interruption, you could check out my book, The Art of Not Falling Apart, 
which is recommended self-isolation reading in The Guardian and The Eye. Here's to not falling apart and to doing work that works for all of us, and I hope you'll join me again next week.